0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new, on this podcast we explore the hard parts of being human and the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. It's been a long, challenging year for many people. From the pandemic and quarantine to graphic depictions of racialized violence and the related social upheaval, to a variety of environmental crises, including the recent fires that have been ravaging the west coast of the United States, we've been through a lot. Oh, and uh, also it's an election year in America, which I'm sure is going to lead to some really rational, thoughtful discourse all the way around. Anyway, things have been at best hard, disruptive, and to use a different kind of word, even traumatic for many people. And with the relatively recent start of the school year, there's been some additional focus on a different and perhaps particularly vulnerable population of people children, and young people all around who have experienced this year's unique challenges as a considerably larger chunk of their lives. Today we're going to be focusing on trauma, resilience, and effective coping, and particularly on the unique challenges experienced by both young people and their parents. I've really been looking forward to this conversation and am incredibly pleased to welcome today's guest, Dr. Allison Briscoe-Smith. Dr. Briscoe-Smith is a child clinical psychologist who specializes in trauma and issues of race. She earned her undergraduate degree from Harvard and then received her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of California at Berkeley, and then went on to become a senior fellow of Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. And she is both a professor and the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Wright Institute. Before we get into today's conversation with Dr. Allison Briscoe-Smith, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder about a couple of things. First of all, if you've been enjoying the podcast, if you could take the opportunity to subscribe to it, we would really appreciate it. And maybe even leave a rating and a positive review for the podcast on the platform of your choice. If you're interested in following the podcast on social media, you can find us on Instagram at beingwellpodcast. And Rick and I both have our own individual profiles on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, if you would like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. We're on patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. So all that said, Allison, thank you so much for doing this. It's great to have you here. How are you doing today?
1: Um, Today is a good day. I think I, I try to keep it specific to that. Um, yesterday, not so much, but today, today's a good day. Mm.
0: I'm glad that you're open to being transparent about it. If you don't mind me prying a little bit, was there anything about yesterday that was particularly troubling?
1: Yeah, you know, I think you mentioned it uh, at the at the top, which is um, having all the things kind of add up. Um, so mm. uh, I'm in here in the Bay Area, and we were on our 28th day of a spare to air spare the air day, which means that the thing that had been our refuge in shelter in place, which was sitting outside or just being outside, or you know, locking the kids out of the house to stay outside, um, hasn't been available to us for for about a month. Mm. While also holding on to, at least we have a house to be in, you know, it's just kind of recognizing that the ash that we are kind of seeing covering our cars is somebody's home or, you know, nature. So that, that all kind of added up a a bit and just uh, the family just kind of felt kind of off, I guess, or maybe not off, or rather really attuned with the kind of sorrow of what was kind of going on. Mm -hmm. It's been taking a while to kind of get out of that. And but today, I, I think things have kind of accumulated. I was really looking forward to this opportunity to talk, and and also just trying to get really focused on some small things that are are feeling good and doing, you know, feels feels good to me. So today, so far, pretty good.
0: I'm glad, um, and I'm glad that you started with just being really open and kind of granular about that, because I think that what gets missed sometimes in the. In the incredible like macro nature of everything that's been going on that's been really challenging for people, some of the micro things get kind of left out, whether it's the little ways that we find refuge inside of our family and like little ways of coping that we have with one another to that sense of attunement you were talking about, where there are going to be some good days and some bad days, that can kind of get missed a little bit inside of that larger conversation, which makes sense. These are huge issues that are really big, really weighty. But for a lot of people's lives, it is about like, wow, I can't go do X today in a very granular human way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, it, that bigness, I think, is so overwhelming when you pay attention to everything mm. that's just so big. Because for me, it translates into things that I can't control, um, which I'm not mm. a fan of as much as I'm working, <laughs> working on that kind of piece. But to try to get small, um, small and proximal and right here um, and to try to come up with something new, you know, the small thing used to be sitting outside. Um, And that's not such a big, it's such a small thing anymore, and it's not available.
0: Mm. So
1: trying to change that.
0: I think that's a great way to think about it. One of the things that you've already sort of pointed to here is kind of a family dynamic, the dynamic that you have inside of your unit with yourself, your broader family, and then your kids. Not only are you a clinician who spends a lot of time uh, working with children and thinking about the challenges that children face, but you are yourself a parent whether it's through the parent lens or the clinician lens or some blending of the two. Are there some unique challenges that you've seen your kids face this year that maybe some adults wouldn't have been as aware of?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's both not necessarily unique, right? So I think the piece that, that we're all struggling with is losing contact, losing the things that we were used to be able to do, whether for adults, it's like the hallway conversation, the coffee cooler conversation, the kind of proximity to, to friends and family. And I think mm-hmm. it's the way that manifests for kids is, is also really different. I, I think we've all been struck by, you know, it's come up, it's literally been six months within our area since we picked up our kids from school and they haven't gone back. So those kinds of hallway conversations, I know for my children, their sports, their dance, their, you know, equivalent of almost like 15 hours a week of being in social interaction outside of school has just been gone. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a radical shift for them. And that's, you know, children are organized in their social relationships. My children are 3, 9, and 11. And I can see the impact across the development really, really clearly about what it has meant for them to lose that. And so there's that on top of their trying to make sense of why is this happening? Are we safe? Are we well? renegotiating family relationships is a thing because now we're spending tons of time with each other. So those relationships are, ch- are changing. Relationships with school. So I think it's it's um, the challenges that we're all having. Our adult relationships with work have changed perhaps. Some things that we like, <laughs> some things that we don't like, <laughs> but it, it's doing that with a three-year-old brain and heart and a nine-year-old brain and heart and an 11-year-old. And then also I I work with teens, um, and the ways that teens are kind of dealing with this is also really challenging as well.
0: To kind of narrow in at something you said there, how does a three-year-old brain and heart or an 11-year-old brain and heart differ? I mean... I. Obviously, in many ways, some of which are probably really obvious to people. But I think it's a it's a question that gets kind of missed sometimes. Like, how are they processing this differently?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for the three-year-old, this is um, – or for the younger child, this becomes the world that they've only ever known. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so uh, – even even my kind of three year old has some some reference points. Like she talks about coronavirus because she can't say coronavirus, so she talks about like her former daycare, which she calls Buenos Dias. She's like Buenos Dias is closed because of coronavirus, right? So she's got that kind of understanding,
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, in yeah. that
1: kind of way. But then for her, which is both a, a beautiful blessing and also really difficult, she has no understanding that school will come back. She has no understanding Mm -hmm. that this isn't just the way of the world. She has no understanding and she hasn't struggled with wearing a mask because wearing a mask is just what you do. And I think for, as we kind of move up the developmental kind of time period, my nine year old and 11 year old remember what it's like. So they're actually mourning and grieving in a different way. You know, Mm -hmm. they've mourned a summer. Remember last summer when we did this. Remember how we did this. You know, they have a reference point to kind of go back to. Um, so that's one way I think the developmental piece is different. I don't know that the younger children are grieving in the same kind of way. They are mm-hmm. struggling for sure. But for the older children, um, and especially as we think about kids whose like rites of passage are, whether it's college or freshman year, or this is supposed to be the year of my son's first dance and all the terror and horror that goes with that, that those things aren't you know available right now. So I wonder if it's if, if it's a matter of kind of grief and loss that's different as they get older.
0: That's definitely pretty resonant for me. I mean, in the, in the small interactions that I've been able to have with younger people over this period of time, that's something that has felt different. Whereas, as you said, this is just kind of the way it is for somebody who is even 10 years old. And yes, of course, they're mourning those interpersonal relationships, but it's the difference between this being, you know, feels like a long time, but six months in the life of a, of a 30-year-old is very, very different from six months in the life of a 10-year-old. And all the changes that are being made based off of that feel like a huge differentiator. I mean, is there anything that you've been doing either inside your practice or with your kids to try to kind of bolster them during this time?
1: I mean, I think it's about just trying to kind of help them manage this time. I think there's this compelling kind of idea that we can tell children when things are over, I think often parents and therapists are put in that place about like, okay, tell us when this is all done. Um, and the beautiful opportunity has been, we don't have that available. Um, so uh, we, we can't tell them,
2: mm-hmm. uh, you'll go
1: back at this time, you'll go back. And in fact, you know, I think I was compelled both as a parent and as just as a person to kind of do that. We'll get through this. We'll get through this. It'll be done soon. It'll be done soon which is one way of kind of managing, but it's not the way of meeting the challenge. It's about getting through it and not meeting it. And so I've been working really hard personally and then also with the folks that I serve to try to just meet the challenge now and not Mm -hmm. focus so much on it being done. Like Mm -hmm. how are we Mm -hmm. actually present in this moment? How do we meet this moment? How do we find ways of being well in this moment as opposed to just gritting our teeth until it's done? And so I'm working on that again personally but also with the children that I serve and the families that I serve. So we're really focused on the now.
0: Is there is there specific advice that you've given to people to try to like move them into that as opposed to being preoccupied with what might happen in the future?
1: Yeah, I think that's the idea of getting really small, concrete and tangible to right now. That like mm-hmm. what can be done in this moment, okay? What can be done in the hour? What can be done in a day. And you know what I've really learned from the kids that I'm working with is it's really important for them to have something to look forward to. Mm, mm -hmm. So even if it's a a movie that we're going to watch together or a meal that we're going to have together or um, something that's a little bit different, that's something that's within our control that we can do, that a, a lot of what's kind of changed in this year is that the things that they used to look forward to, you know, like Whether it's you know Halloween or that dance or hanging out with that friend are are different now. So if there are ways that we can give something for them to look forward to, that that's actually helpful, without having it be looking forward to this ending uh, or this being done. And and I really have learned that from particularly the adolescents who I've worked with who've articulated that as what they miss, feeling like, well, why would I want to get up in the morning? There's nothing to look forward to.
2: Mm, mm -hmm. You know,
1: why would I? not sleep 38 hours, because there's nothing to look forward to, to trying to build some things that they have to to plan for.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that's a great way to think about it. I mean, hope is such a important part of the whole experience that everyone's going through right now, I think, because myself included at certain points in time, like, it's really easy to start to look around at the world and go, okay, this is just how it's going to be from now on whether that's quarantine or that's all of the horrible stuff that's been going on socially or like depictions of violence on the screen over and over again, like whatever it is that we're talking about, we can um, take our current experience and kind of prorate it out toward the next of our existence because like now we've been in this for six months or whatever it is, it's really easy to do that. And I'm sure for a kid, it's just as easy.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: It feels like a lot of children right now might be experiencing some real hopelessness where they feel like they don't have much to look forward to and like there aren't that many things that they're optimistic about in their life. Maybe related to that, what are some signs that children are starting to become really particularly burdened and their mental health is under assault from the circumstances that they find themselves in? To put it another kind of way, what are some of the signs that a child has started to wander toward maybe some, some soft PTSD at the very least?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's both, you know, a soft PTSD, and for some of our kids, especially as we're thinking about the kind of presence of racialized violence or yeah, the presence of totally. things like losing a home to fires, or I've got a lot of family members in the in the South, so floods. So, you know, trauma is there, but I also am a, I, yeah. I don't want to make everything real, relativistic because I think there's a way that sometimes I'm being asked by a lot of schools to come and talk and um, come and mm. speak and help them think about how to welcome their children back, which I think is a great way but some of them are feeling as if every child is coming back into school and we're going to expect every one of them to be traumatized. Like, no. Or also this piece around like, well, every Black child has to be traumatized. Well, no. So to kind of think about your kind of question in terms of what are the signs, one of the things that we really have to do and that we're terrible at as adults and parents is honestly listening to our children, not just forecasting or or projecting our worry on them, I've worked with so many parents, um, and myself included that have come up with this whole list of worries. And then usually my question is, well, what does your child say about that? Like, oh, well, we haven't asked them. Okay, well, <laughs> well, where's this worry kind of come from? That's us. So it's hard not to kind of slow that down. So I think the first thing is we really have to listen to our kids, which means that we've got to ask them questions. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you making sense of this? Does this feel different? Um, And then I think we do also need to be kind of watchful. The thing that I've heard in the kind of therapist community is to watch for significant changes that persist for a long time. So Mm, mm -hmm. as we've made this kind of shift and as so many kind of phases are coming in, I would expect that children's sleep patterns are going to be different. If it's a radical shift that persists and is not really amenable to kind of moving back, then I'd start worrying about that. Eating habits, social habits, all of those things by default, for many families have already changed. I I think it's about trying to see how long does it persist or noticing, you know, what actually brings your child joy now? Are there opportunities for joy? Are they able to play, um, interact, find some enjoyment somewhere and to be watchful for those kind of things? But if those pieces are shifting, eating, sleeping, enjoyment. Those are my baseline kind of pieces. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And they should be a little different now um, because we're in a different world. Yeah, But persistent changes that the child himself is unhappy with is something I'd look for.
0: What are, um, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. So my dad, Rick, uh, did a lot of work with kids when he was more of a practicing clinician. Kids and families were kind of his area of focus. And uh, I would often see him talk with kids a certain kind of way, and I have a hard time kind of describing what exactly that kind of way is, but you're smiling, I think you know what I'm talking about. Maybe for some of those adults or parents, we have a lot of people who listen to the show who are clinicians, but we also have a lot of people listen who are parents or who are teachers or whoever else. What are some of the ways that they could approach that, like that actual active listening conversation with a child in a way that would be like most serve the child?
1: Mm. I mean, I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to make sure that we're ready to hear. So we've got to do Mm. our own kind Mm -hmm. of work. I I spend a lot of time with parents who like want to come up with like the perfect thing to say. Um, Or, you know, the title of my talk is often like how to talk to kids about race. But really, that's just to get people in the door because it's really how do we listen Mm. to kids about it? And then the other thing that we do as parents is I'm not ready to hear some of the responses. I'm not ready to hear, um, you know, I want you to do it my way. So I think actually half the work is, are you ready to hear? Are are you really Mm, ready to mm -hmm. hear that your child is really depressed and is really struggling? Are you ready to hear that they're actually doing quite well and are more worried about you?
2: Mm, I have to say there's mm -hmm. a, there's
1: about a third of my practice (laughs) where, it's the kids, the kids, I had one kid kind of say, I'm totally fine, but can you have a session with my parents? Because my parents are doing well. incredibly <laughs>
0: sweet. Wow.
1: <laughs> but, but I also think, you know, the parent has to be willing to hear that. So I think half of the, the piece is, are you doing okay? Are you doing okay this moment? How are you modeling, trying to be well? Do you have the bandwidth and capacity to hear the whole range of what your children have to offer? which is that they might not be doing well, or they might be doing better than you. Yeah, so I think you got to start with that part <laughs> first, before you've got the like great words to say.
0: Mm, I think that's amazing advice. And also kind of gets back to that, um, that hope and purpose sub theme that's kind of been weaving, dancing around the conversation so far, because a, a kid wants to feel effective too. You know, I mean, a parent wants to feel effective as a provider and a caregiver giver and whatever, but a child wants to feel effective as a child whether that's fulfilling the role as being the child inside of the family structure, or it's doing a nice thing for their mom, and their mom then responds to them and is like, wow, that was really sweet. You're a really great kid. And just because the scopes of a lot of people's lives have gotten a little smaller, there have become less opportunities to feel that way, I think, naturally.
1: Yeah, I I think it's also the ways in which we try to feel kind of efficacious. The scope has changed Mm. with such a big... I mean, again, you kind of named... Whether it's the the scope of the pandemic or the scope of our climate issues, the scope of persistent racialized violence, or the scope of an impending election and the polarization that's kind of... So those are all things that feel, because they are, really big and that many folks are struggling to feel effective or efficacious with. So what is my role within the election? What is my role within racial violence? What is my role within a pandemic? And then you can see what we try to do is get small, like, so wear a mask. Um, or, you know, I think in the case of of race is the, the reckoning that we're asking people to kind of go through and think about. And then mm. to bring it in the family is if our parents, if we as parents are not feeling particularly kind of efficacious or effective, then that's going to show up for our kids. And kids are looking for some type of mastery, that that's like development, right? Whether it's over that they can count or tie their shoes or click into a Zoom classroom, you know, those types Mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. if there's something that's small that they can kind of do, or as you're kind of saying, and I think as kids are also saying, they know that we as parents are distressed, like, we're not fooling anybody. And we're definitely not fooling our kids.
0: So something that you've mentioned uh, a couple of times here that I really want to go into that side of the conversation is the racial violence component of it. Of course, there have been many, many times throughout our recent history where we have seen a lot of violence perpetrated against non-white bodies, black bodies in particular. Um, But both the intensity of it recently, the frequency of it, the cultural conversation that we've created around it, thank goodness, but still the intensity of that um, has felt pretty unique, at least in my lifetime. And of course, children are seeing this too. Um, Even if it's just over our shoulder as we scroll through Facebook on the phone, Uh, they're getting these images, they're touching these conversations. As you just said, like, this is kind of a a fake question to a certain extent, because a lot of it's just about like how parents interact with this stuff. But how have you talked with children about racial violence inside of your work?
1: Mm -hmm. It definitely comes up a a lot with my work. So in the work of, um, Mm -hmm. you know, listening to to kids and also um, listening to parents um, and working a lot with parents who are asking, like, how do I support my children? So, you know, working Mm. within the context of Black in particular, but also BIPOC families, just also thinking about um, the questions kind of raising is like, how do I support them in navigating this? How do I help them understand this? So so those questions are definitely coming up. And I'm hearing a whole range of things. Um, But let me tell you the piece that I'm not hearing. I'm not hearing that kids are not affected. I think there's a hope that that kids are not knowing what's going on or didn't see or don't know. I think that, that hope is manifested honestly and more frankly amongst the white families that I work with, in part because they are in a position that they perhaps can ensure that their children don't see this, but it's not one that I'm finding for the the Black and families of color. I think I also kind of say it this way. I get invited to kind of do lots of talks about how do children understand race, and typically. For years, I've had to begin with addressing the question of do well. The main questions are like, why does this conversation matter? Um, How you know when should we do it and how we should do it. I don't have to spend as much time in terms of why anymore. Like that, people are kind of convinced that this is impacting kids and kids are seeing it. So there's there's that. So I get to skip the kind of like trying to convince people that this is important within some circles. But uh, kids are. I'm hearing from a lot of both kids and families, that kids are distressed and they're worried about going outside, worrying about um, how to make sense of police officers, worried about how to get help, worried about who is safe and who is not. Um, Those are big worries and big concerns. And the other thing is that teenagers are, um, their access to watching all of this in live time is a lot. They're carrying it in their hands. They're commenting about it in... And, you know, TikTok and Instagram and all the things that they do, they're they're in it a whole lot more than I think most parents are really aware of, and, it, and it's a lot for them to manage. So I, I don't know that there are too many kids who have got access to a phone that don't know what's going on in terms of race um, and racialized violence mm. right now.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: And I think it's just a matter of are we talking to them about it and helping them understand it?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm drawn to go toward your individual experience here a little bit. There's a um, there's a writer that I love. His name is Clint Smith. He's an amazing writer at The Atlantic. He wrote a, a wonderful piece titled uh, "How to Raise a Black Sun in America." Mm, yeah, and did, like did a TED talk related to it. He's a phenomenal writer. Inside of this piece, he's a guy who's obviously been done a lot of thinking about the impact of race in the United States. And the broad overtone of the piece was. Even though I've done all of this thinking, all of this writing on this topic, I still don't really know how to like talk to my kid about this. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you've done a lot of thinking, a lot of work inside of this topic. Um, how have you talked with your kids about it?
1: It's the way that I kind of think about it is I think a lot of folks are approaching um, this as a type of conversation. I think there's even a way people talk about having the talk, right? So it used to be like the sex talk or the drug talk, and now it's the race talk. But I, I really f- fundamentally believe that, that um, I've been talking about this since day one with them and not, mm-hmm. not necessarily always kind of explicitly, but in the ways that I negotiate race as a, as a black person, um, the way that I help them negotiate race. You know, my children are mixed. Um, they're black, white, and Mexican. So how um, I try to help them negotiate that. So it's not a new, new conversation. Also, you know, <laughs> for, for better or for worse you know, I spend a lot of time talking about this and thinking about this and doing a lot of talks and I drag my kids to it. So, you know, my kids, Mm. (laughs) my kids have seen the slide deck about implicit bias. Yeah, totally. And it's something that I've had to think about, like, how much do I expose them to this? How do I kind of support them in this? How do I not try to have this be a burden that I place on them? But so the question is, like, how have I been talking about what's been going on recently? And I would say, like, in the same ways that we always talk about it. So my kids, um, my older kids in particular ha- already have a language around this. They weren't, unfortunately, uh, um, surprised by what's kind of going on. They know that they can come and talk to members of the family around uh, why did they do that to Jacob Blake? Or, you know, the, the pieces, they're not so much asking why anymore. They're like, oh, that was racism. I'm like, yeah, that was racism. And how do we think about that? And what do people need to to do to combat racism? So it's an ongoing ongoing conversation and I also share you know the sentiment like as much as I'm a person who's like this is my job um, and that I spend a lot of time in these spaces, I still you know I'm still growing with it. I worry that maybe I talk too much or I share hmm. too much or that I've kind of ex- not um, supported them enough in these conversations. And also it's different. My conversation is different for them. you know I'm a black kid that grew up in in Hawaii that's pretty different in terms of how I think about <laughs> and understand race than having three multiracial kids growing up in the Bay area yeah. in the midst of a pandemic. And also three, my kids are red very differently. My son is red as black. My daughter is red as Latina and my um, youngest daughter is red as white. So mm. they're, they're going to be interacting with the world differently.
0: That's such a poignant comment, the last one you made there, about how your children are read differently and how that changes the nature of their experiences. Talking about that a little bit, inside of a lot of the systems that kids are engaging in, whether it's like a school system, a family system, whatever, including, unfortunately, inside of many family systems, there's an element of implicit bias that comes in and racial bias of various kinds that comes in. How have you gone about having that conversation with families who are exposed to that? And also, how have you talked with educators, other clinicians, people who support children um, who are exposed to a lot of implicit bias?
1: You know, I typically use implicit bias as a doorway into the conversation. Um, And it's a pretty specific, subversive plot on my end, um, because I found when I Started off with uh, just the the delineation of the very clear and stark disproportionalities in terms of education, in particular, that um, defenses get kicked up. Um, but when I can kind of enter in with implicit bias and move to some of the the brain science around, um, you know, what's kind of going on with our brains, it tends to reduce the defenses and allows me a little bit of a way in. Yeah. Some defenses still get kicked up especially when people actually take the test. And I, every time I encourage people to take tests, test, people come back to me and say, I passed the implicit association test. I'm like, what does that mean that you passed? Like there is no <laughs> passing. But, but is there, yeah. there is this sense that somehow it's some sort of calibration of our worth or calibration of, of how good we are. So that's, I, I typically kind of begin borrowing from Beverly Tatum's kind of language, which she talks about there's a smog in the air and that mm. the smog is filled with persistent negative messages about who's on the downside of power. Um, and that smog is really definitely more impactful if you're on the downside of power. It's as if you're the asthmatic and the smog, but it's also not great for anybody. So that kind of language is the one that I, that I use because it allows people who may be really defended in a conversation about their own racism um, and their own, you know, bias behavior to kind of enter in a little bit more Mm -hmm. with that. And then I found in terms of kids, you know, kids love the conversation about implicit bias because it's something that they can identify and see, you know, like, Oh, there's Mm -hmm. a bias over Mm -hmm. there or there there's a bias over here. Um, And I really believe that that it gives them a little bit of a distance to feel like it's not me. It's a system. It's not me. It's a bias. As opposed to, I must be wrong.
2: Mm -hmm. You know,
1: it helps them kind of, I think that's the benefit of helping to talk to kids about bias is it gives them a layer to think about, this is not something that they have done wrong. Rather, it um, is a trick of our thinking, um, or it's something that can be kind of outside of them in some ways.
0: I was talking with Erin Trent Johnson uh, for an interview that we had, and she does anti-racism work, um, and is a great educator on these topics. And we kind of got into the implicit bias conversation a little bit because, of course, the you know the 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 obvious almost inherent joke in the name like implicit bias is that it's often not very implicit. It's often extremely yeah. explicit. So you have these different categories, right? You have the biases that are really explicit and really gross and obvious, um like some of the violence that we were talking about before. And then you have little things where, someone just doesn't realize that they called on boys to answer questions five times in a row. And obviously, that has an enormous cascade effect through our educational systems, our work systems, whatever. And in those cases, you can give kind of the like, oh, okay, maybe they weren't aware of this in an explicit way. Um, and, and I like that point that you're making about it gives a way to Trojan horse the message in without being attacked by like the defensiveness structure around somebody, accepting the ways in which they've internalized these racial systems.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It does allow. I, I at least I found that. Now again, some defenses kind of come up, and and the the piece too is the it trick in the name. So while it's implicit, you know that that implies that it's unconscious, but that's another way to address the issue of I didn't mean it. Because that's so often Mm -hmm. what kind of comes up, well, like, I didn't mean it, or I was scared or was operating, like, and that, again, is how implicit bias works. You know, we operate off of our implicit biases when we're under cognitive overwhelm, need to make multiple decisions quickly, when we're busy. And and so that's kind of the the, the point is to, for me, I can't stand the conversation regarding I didn't mean it, or that was not my intent. Not that I can't stand it, but I get so frustrated with it because you know intentionality very rarely has much to do with the impact, and i rather than spending all this time around the intentionality, which is frankly the conversation that I hear happening at a national level, you know when I hear people defending against whether or not you know well what is kind of racism, I hear people kind of moving to the place of like, but we're good people trying really hard. And implicit bias allows us to think about this might not have anything to do with how quote unquote good you are, but this might have a whole lot to do, um, and actually might be showing up in your in your classrooms, for example, regardless of how, how a wonderful, great, kind, loving person you are, you may be calling on boys five times more, or you might be yeah. three times more likely to kick a black boy out of class. Yeah. And so that that language I like to be able to kind of use so that I don't have to, my friend calls it brand management when people are like, but I'm a good person or my best friend is, or I voted <laughs> for so-and-so, you know, you kind of get into that, yeah, that totally. piece um, and it allows us to move away. Like what if this has nothing to do with how good of a person you are, but that your impacts are still differential um, and problematic.
0: As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OSO1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from and please support the show. And tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value, and making it a priority in our lives, is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash beingwell. You've already pointed to a bunch of stuff that I would I would love to keep on talking about a little bit. One of them was that as schools have started up, particularly under some like uniquely weird circumstances here, people going to school over Zoom, they don't have that classroom presence, what are still some ways that... Bias, whether it's implicit or explicit, can show up even in those environments. You know,
1: this is the piece that I've been kind of racking my brain about, and I'm super worried about, honestly. So, I think in some ways, um, I'm like excited for the ways in which there are some biases that will fall out, right? So, um, yeah. so I'll give you a little example. My son yeah, always gets in trouble for talking to, too much. Like, he is a very social being, right? So, he's a social being. He talks all the time. He always gets in trouble. Now he's on mute. So in a classroom now, he's not being identified as disruptive at all mm. because it's, he's not talking, right? So, so, Or the ways in which he talks is totally appropriate. So there's a way that there's a channel. But for me, I've been worried about like when he goes back into the classroom and especially when he goes back in the classroom and finally connects up with his homies again – He's going yeah. to be talking. but So that, that's one way, I think, that the potential for some pieces to be reduced. But I'm actually really worried about the potential, just uh, things that people aren't taking for, for granted or are taking for granted. I think many people have seen the image of the two little girls that had to sit outside a Taco Bell in order to get the Wi-Fi, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now what we're actually seeing and what it means that, that teachers and other children are having access into each other's homes when they haven't been invited, we just got this big thing, uh, because we've got to change up the security platform because we found that there are inappropriate, quote unquote, inappropriate images in the background of some of the kids' homes. And for me, it called into the question about, well, what is the, what is an inappropriate image? What, what is that? And is a kid in a home or is a kid in, you know, a kid that has to go to the mechanics, you know, his father's a mechanic and has to go to the office there. And so what, So all of a sudden, like, it's it's this moment that I thought, like, ah, maybe the behavioral piece will fall away and that actually kids will be doing better. Like, no, we've just shifted it to other other ways. Like, so what are you reading? You know, I just, again, another example for my daughter. My daughter was talking about one of her teachers who she finds, she said this, you know, when I don't understand it, I can know, I can ask that teacher and she'll help me. But there's another teacher who, when I don't understand something, says that's because you weren't paying attention. So... And the cue for paying attention is whether or not you're on screen or not, yeah, so I, i'm 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 trusting that implicit bias is finding its way in this forum. It's just that I'm worried because it's not what I'm used to. You know, my ways of helping to support teachers and think about it is a little bit different in terms of talking about what we value in terms of behavior. Oh, that actually helps me uh, to say it out loud. I tend to work with families, uh, teachers about like what what behaviors are we valuing from our children?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And and that's what we tend to privilege, you know, so often it turns out to be the quiet kid who raises their hand. But I think we're starting to privilege other things in terms of people's households, you privilege somebody that has a safe workspace. Well, that's a class issue. That's, that's a housing issue. Yeah, you got me excited about that topic, because I'm thinking a whole lot about it.
0: Great. I would love to kind of continue that that thought thread. Then, what are some of the ways historically that you've you've worked with kids or worked with educators to help them start to kind of like peel back the onion of some of these yeah. topics? Um, yeah. Maybe including people who who aren't just quote unquote a good person about these topics, but they've actually already done some thinking and some work around them.
1: One of the things is like you know, first level, and this is a level that's pretty much available to to everybody. And now I think is to like become aware. But the majority of kind of like training and other programs stay right there, right? So they stay Mm -hmm, at like awareness mm -hmm. and that's not particularly helpful. Yeah. Then is the next piece, which is, I think goes back to what I've kind of said before, you've got to do the personal work. Are you ready? Are you able to see the places in which you've harmed and, you know, make amends for that? And then that the seeing the ways in which you've harmed the ways I've worked in schools is actually by listening to kids and to listen to kids about what has this experience been like? You know, one of the most impactful things I've ever done is there was a documentary that was done about the experiences of black boys with implicit bias. And then we took that video back to their teachers. Um, you know, these boys are at, were at this point were in high school, but we were able to take them back to the teachers and show them. And it was really painful for the teachers. I didn't mean to make him feel that way. I didn't intend to make him feel. I didn't know that, that was the impact, but it was also really helpful because they got a chance to really hear from those children who they loved that their impact was, was harmful. So, that's one way is really helping teachers and schools be able to listen to kids. We often do that in the context of data. So, let's take a look. So, who's being sent to this principal's office? Oh, aha, <laughs> here's what we're kind of seeing. Or we move it into the classroom practice. And then helping teachers to kind of work with each other around what they're seeing and being accountable to to each other. And then the other piece that I really find provocative and really helpful is asking teachers, and asking all of us, like, but asking teachers in the context of classroom, what behaviors do you privilege?
2: Mm-hmm. What behaviors
1: are, are the ones that are privileged? And then how does that kind of align with, with whiteness? Where does it not align yeah. with whiteness? It's especially, I would have to say, in kind of middle school, how does it li- align with gender? Um, mm, and gender mm-hmm. performance and, you know, what people are, are meaning around that. But that's a hard reckoning to kind of do. And then you have to think about, how do I shift that? You know, what if I actually value um, kids who are answering, you know, kinesthetically, as opposed to verbally, you know, what if yeah. I value collaboration versus, you know, beating each other to the to the top? Yeah, yeah,
0: no, th- this is great. And, um, What I'm thinking of right now is like the mental model that we have of what a school looks like or what a classroom looks like. And I just kind of, while you were talking, tried to go through my own, like, what's my model of what a middle school classroom looks like. And it was, frankly, a very white model. It was very much like the stock image picture of the kids with their hand raised, the like 10 white kids, the one token black kid in the image, whatever it is. And it's that very like individuated, quiet, Teacher sit, stands in the front of the class, the children are responsive to the teacher. And then I just kind of asked myself, I was like, where does that model come from? And it, of course, it comes from a lot of different places, but something that I hadn't necessarily thought about until you said it is like, "What? who does that mental model benefit? And I think that that is such like a fundamental question that you're asking here. Like, what are those models, and who do they benefit? Who do they privilege?
1: Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of reckoning part, right? Just is to go through that and to know that every decision that we're gonna make is gonna privilege somebody. I think it's about putting that into awareness and then making some decisions around. You know, uh, are we always gonna privilege that? That means that that is a place too where where I'm seeing some really successful teachers. Like one of the things that I'm seeing within my daughter's class is that in order for the kids to answer the question, they need to do something with their bodies because actually saying it out loud while everyone is muted isn't working. So they, the teacher in her genius you know, is like, okay, if you all think the answer is between this and this, do jumping jacks. So you can see all these kids you know, on the screen doing jumping jacks. And if you think it's this, then lay down. If you do it, you know, but so that actually is privileging another type of kinesthetic and bodily kind of communication. And, you know, I'm hoping that we don't forget some of the lessons that we do learn, um, you know, in this kind of time so that we can maybe, you know, we've, we're have forced to privilege different things now. You know, we're, we're, you know, forced to, in some ways, kind of privilege the screen in this kind of way. But, you know, what that's meant is that the screen is not always the enemy. You know, now the screen hmm. is the pathway by which we're going to be connected. So I, I'm worried and hopeful about where it can kind of go. But I think asking all of ourselves that question, what are we privileging in this moment? What are we demonstrating that we're valuing in this moment? And is that really aligned with what we want to be doing?
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking uh, to myself as we're like having this conversation that there are kind of these, I hate to stereotype this, but I'll just do it. And if you will, if you push back on it, that's great. But there are these two kinds of hard conversations that I can think about um, having to have with your kid, and the first is I'm thinking as a as a white parent, I'm a white person, I'm going to have at least somewhat white children because that's the way that genetics works. Mm-hmm. Having a a moment with my kid where I I hope that I will educate them around these issues, and I will hope that I will do a good job of talking with them about it. But there will be a moment where they experience these things for the first time, probably as an observer, because they are going to be probably in part white presenting at the very least. And the moment where you talk to a kid that you've tried to educate around these issues and you've tried to say, hey, these are things that happen out in the real world and they're not good, but here they are. And that kid comes home and they say, hey, I saw today my friend have X happen to them. I have to imagine that that comes up in your work with some regularity. And then of course, the other side of it, speaking from a non-white perspective, the first time that your kid experiences that in a very felt sensed way, they come home, they go, hey, you told me about this, but wow, that was weird. How do you work with parents to have those conversations with their children?
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, so part of it, I think, is also like the kind of when, you know, when the child is receiving the bias, right? So when they're the recipient. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way that oftentimes parents, um, and I don't want to say, this is not the right way of saying it. Sometimes it's easier when you're on the victim side to have the conversation. Now That's not to say that I want anyone to be the victim, but I'll put it in this way. Like, you know, when my daughter got bit at school, I was righteous. I was indignant. Mm, I knew mm-hmm, how to take mm-hmm, care mm-hmm. of her. That was terrible that someone bit you at school. Now, I don't ever want her bit, right? And I don't want that to yeah, happen. of course, it, of course. I had a much harder time when my son was the biter, so, I mean, I think I would think mm-hmm. about that dichotomy that you presented in terms of both witnessing and receiving a little bit differently in terms of, and where, where families I think are struggling is what if it's my kid or what if it's yeah, when my absolutely. kid acts in a way that is racist.
0: That's a great framing. Yeah.
1: And I think that's the place that I see families just get kind of stuck, but we couldn't, he's a child. I love him. He's so sweet. He likes trucks. Yeah. And he wouldn't let the kid play because his skin was brown. And I think that that's a hard reckoning, and it's not to say, and you know, I would love it if you know we didn't have to have the question on the perspective of the victimhood either. But, but let me also kind of complicate it. So I spend all my time talking to my kids, and you know, about like loving themselves because they're brown, and um, you know, trying to kind of combat this kind of racism until the day comes came when I got a call from another black parent um, who said that my daughter had been teasing another kid because of the color of her skin. And I was like, what? Not my, she's seen the talk, you know, Mm -hmm. all all of that. Mm -hmm. And then I had to sit with that. And what ended up happening was my daughter's kind of my skin complexion. We're light skin. We own light skin privilege in this way. And she was very proud of her skin color um, and her caramel color and feeling great about her skin color. And in her conversation around her pride, a little girl who, by the way, is the same ethnic mix, black, Mexican, right? Yeah. Is darker skinned. And so her my daughter's conversation about her light skin in that kind of way felt like and was hard for this darker skinned girl because it mean, meant mm-hmm. that her dark mm-hmm. skin wasn't valued. Right? So that, that was a complex place. So I had to have the yeah. conversation, like, just because we're on the downside of power in some particular ways doesn't mean that we're not on the upside and that we can't perpetrate. So... While I was sophisticated in the language of our victimhood, I was not sophisticated in the language of our privilege um, and the mm. ways in which our privileges kind of show up. So I think that's also the, the way that I needed to expand and be ready for that and to think about that, not just in the language of race, but what about our class privilege? What about our ability privilege? What about all these other pieces that I need to be teaching and expanding my children's repertoire, because we we are committing those harms. Um, so that that's the way that I kind of think about it is like how I think we get prepared in our head to defend our children and to protect
2: them. Mm-hmm. But what do
1: we need to do when we need to hold our children accountable? And maybe we think about holding them accountable for like eating their broccoli um, or do it for you know <laughs> the other places kind of discipline. But I haven't heard a lot of people think about how do I actually shape and support my children as they operate on their privilege.
0: What are some of the, um, I want to say tactics, but I don't know if that's quite the right word, like the the good tactics that you have seen parents employ or that you teach parents to employ with their kids in in order to do that more effectively? Mm -hmm. Like what's some good modeling or, you know, because we can talk about like having a teachable moment. But there's a real difference between having a teachable moment kind of in the abstract and actually being in the moment where you're activated and your kid's done something that makes you feel horrible effectively mm-hmm. about your effectiveness as a parent or about their behavior out in the world or whatever. Like, what are some of the granular ways that you've talked with parents about doing that with their kids?
1: The, the real kind of rubric or tactic that I use is to, to support families in recognizing what their family mission statement is or their family values are. Um, Mm -hmm. there's a ways in which I feel like family values have been co-opted, but, but when we kind of, you know, (laughs) stop to
0: kind of think, you know,
1: so, you know, sometimes I say that and people look at me funny, but, but we all have family values. We have, and I, I do a little kind of thing, which is create a family mission statement. What is the thing that you say to your kids all the time? Who are you as a family? And the, the basic point of that is to have something small and concrete right in front of you so that when we are blown out of the water by Hmm. what kind of happens that we have to take a pause and come back down to, okay, who are we and how am I going to reference this in that context? So one of the things that we often do within our family is kindness, right? So in that kind of conversation with my daughter, I could say, you know, did you think that your conversation about your skin color was not kind? She's like, no, it was kind. It was kind to me. I'm like, yes, but kindness to you doesn't necessarily mean that it's kind to everybody else. Did you Could you tell mm. that this other little girl was distressed and that she was having a hard time? Well, yes. So then how could we be kind in that moment? And that kindness in the moment doesn't mean that she had to denigrate her own skin. She could have been like, and your skin is beautiful too. But so we mm. just had mm-hmm. to like come down to to what we say to our kids all the time. I, I'm, I'm really about trying to keep it simple, not coming up with anything kind of new. Like it's the conversation that you're already having and to, to just remember to, to slow down and kind of remember. I was talking with a family just the other day, and she said that her mission statement was "ain't no mountain high enough," which I <laughs> I loved and was like felt hard, right? But so th- she said yeah. that the ways in which she was using that to reference when her children felt, when her son felt stuck. Remember, there's no mountain that's high enough for us to not be able to to overcome. Hmm. That, that that we can go ahead and do this, um, and that we come from a people who've done this we can do this together. And so it was just a grounding kind of piece that, that I think can be helpful in those kinds of moments. So that would be my tactic is remember who you are (laughs) And, and what it is that you're trying to teach your children, you know, who it is that you're trying to teach your children to become and to try to answer it in that frame.
0: I think that's a lovely lesson and I really appreciate it. And also, I mean, just as a personal reflection for a minute, I think that, um, definitely on the podcast broadly, and also my instinct, I think, is to get kind of focused on tactics of different kinds. Like, what can somebody do practically out in the world to to, to do the thing, to whatever it is? And a lot of the time, I think that, to your point, it's more about frameworks and your big picture what are our family values, as you were saying? Like, what are the ways that I want to operate out in the world and to be guided by those broad principles as opposed to getting too narrow about, like, okay, here's how I'm going to have this conversation. Because if you're operating inside of those principles and you're operating in good faith, you're probably going to do okay at Mm -hmm. the end of the day. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And and also just easier to remember. Like, I think in the moment (laughs) we get lost with all, like, oh, what is a special thing that I have to do? But if the only thing that you have to remember is who are we as a family Mm. and you know, how do I think about whether it's kindness or whether it's compassion or another family said, we value everybody. Okay. What does that mean? How do Mm -hmm. you do that? Was this a moment that you were demonstrating that you valued this person? How are you feeling valued? It also, it just becomes this, another um, person I was working with said, it becomes this visor that you can put on to help you see the world. Like it's a, it's a lens And just for me, it's easy to remember (laughs) because in that moment, it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to kind of remember all the things, um, and you know how it is that you really want to operate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that's a wonderful note to kind of wrap the most of the content side of our conversation on. But there is a last question that I try to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and I think that given that we've been doing a lot of talking about kids, it's a particularly pertinent one. If you had the opportunity to go back in time to your own childhood. And uh, you actually reflected on this already in a beautiful piece that you wrote for the Greater Good Science Center that I'll link in the description of the podcast today. And to talk to yourself as a child or a young adult, what would you want to say to that person?
1: I listened to someone else that you had here, a friend of mine, uh, who I call um, Rab Taylor. Um, And... and, uh, (laughs) You know, she said something that has kind of kicked around in my head, but I do think it's what I want everybody to kind of feel. But if I had to go back in time to, you know, my 9-year-old or 8-year-old self, I would really be to say you are enough.
2: Hmm.
1: That you know that you right now as you are, um, and as you will be or are, are enough. And that's what I really want, you know, kids to know you're enough. You, you are you're just what the world needs right now in this moment. You're exactly who you're supposed to be. Yeah, I would I would definitely tell her. I think she could have heard that. Um, she might not have ended mm. up being a psychologist though, if she had really believed that she was, <laughs> she was enough, <laughs> but, uh, it would have been called in kind of a different way, but I, I, I have to agree with that sentiment that, that if we could really teach children that they are, are enough, uh, and, and, the, and they're perfect in the way that they are, that would be help.
0: Alison, thank you so much for doing this today. This was totally wonderful.
1: Yeah, it was really, really fun. Thanks for, you kick some things off in my head. I'm like, ah, you put some things together that I hadn't been thinking about. So I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And I yeah, truly thank you for taking the time. I know it's going to help a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to be part of this dialogue. It's really helpful.
0: Today, I had a wonderful time talking with Dr. Alison Briscoe-Smith. As you could probably tell, I had a lot of fun during the conversation. I felt like I learned a ton myself. And we covered a variety of topics related to working with children, and particularly the ways that children are experiencing the stress and challenge of this unique moment. The two primary topics that we focused in on were the impact of COVID and quarantine, particularly as that impacts a child's social life, family dynamic, and interaction with school. And then racism and racial violence. How can we get better at working with and educating children on issues of race? And how can we be more responsive to them when they share their experiences with us? And one of the themes for me really of our conversation was the way in which Working with a child, quote unquote, is really most of the time about the parent working on themselves and asking themselves, Am I ready to have these conversations with my child? Have I done the work myself internally to be prepared for this conversation? We talked for a while about hope and hopelessness, about how for many kids who are very young, this moment is all that they've experienced. So there's kind of no need to look forward to something else, but for children who are 8, 10, 13, whatever it might be, they're going through a real grieving process right now for all the things that they've lost. And finding opportunities to instill hope in them, and also, frankly, to instill more hope in ourselves for what could be a brighter future, is a really key aspect of helping people cope effectively with the moment. Another real theme that I felt in the conversation was focused on our paradigms. What are our models and our structures? And as Allison said at the end there, our family values that inform our behavior. Because frankly, on this podcast, we can get really tactical. And I think that getting tactical and practical and offering here's the discreet tool to do this thing well is a really useful service. I think it can help in most situations. But as Allison pointed to, Sometimes it's a lot easier to just remember what we stand for and how do we want to go about showing up in the world around us. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today as well. I'm going to be linking to an article that Allison wrote for the Greater Good Science Center. I referenced it during our conversation. It's titled, How Can I Stay Positive for My Kids When I'm So Overwhelmed? She wrote it a few months ago, but if anything, I think it is only more pertinent right now. It is a wonderful piece of writing. It's one of the best that I've read recently on these topics. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you took a moment to rate it, to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even if you could leave a positive review. It really does help us out. It helps more people find the podcast, and it's one of the best ways you can support the show. If you would like to find other ways to support the show, you can join us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can receive access to expanded show notes and even special Q&A conversations between Rick and me. So again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being interested in these topics, and I'll talk with you soon.